Hi, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're talking with Patrick Beaudry. And when we recorded this episode, he was still working on his master's degree. He's now completed it and handed it in. I do have to admit that I've actually known Patrick since he was a wee one, running around with my brother. And it's quite amazing to see what a great young man he's become. As you know by now, in this podcast, I talk to scholars, academics, amateurs, students, and even graduates. This podcast was also one of the first ones recorded, and there was a little bit of a technical difficulty. Unfortunately, we lost about the last 20 minutes. But of course, Patrick agreed to get together again, and we recorded that last bit again. So thanks so much, Patrick, for having all this patience with these newfangled toys of mine. Time to jump into some history, hey? So today we're talking with Patrick Beaudry. And actually a very interesting fact we found out is that he got his interest of history through a video game <laughs> that was talking about Omaha Beach during World War II. Yeah, absolutely. So was that when you were really young? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I started playing video games pretty, pretty young, like most kids of my generation. But uh, I just think it's an interesting fact because um, usually a lot of historians today, they gain their interest through you know, uh, reading books or having contact with people who had lived through wars or, you know, the Great Depression or something like that. But for me, it was just, um, you know, it was like a hobby of mine. And this video game depicted the invasion of Normandy through the American scope, looking at Omaha Beach. I just remember as a kid, I think I must have been like eight or nine, but I was wondering, like, why is it that this was happening why is it that people were storming these beaches and why were people dying and why were people being killed and it just made me want to know how something so massive could happen and how human society could just do such a thing and uh, yeah since then I just it, everything else started to pique my interest it wasn't just military history but I wanted to know why things were happening around the world and and how things happened in the past and how it uh, ultimately shaped us today well that's kind of a a nice little side benefit to playing video games, <laughs> <Absolutely>. I guess. <laughs> so, talk to us about your topic. So, my topic is actually about social pressures to enlist during the First World War, as well as social pressures to resist enlistment. So, my topic is, it's a little special because it actually goes from August 1914, so during the war's declaration, mm -hmm. up until about October of 1916. So what's important about this is that this is actually before the implementation of conscription in Canada. What's significant about this is that many historians in the past have tended to focus on enlistment as a failure, which ultimately led up to the implementation of conscription. So, you know, I'm happy that I'm looking at enlistment as its own topic and in its form. before it became a conscription. Absolutely. And, and not just that, but like there is a form of social compulsion mm -hmm. inside like within the topic that I'm doing, which is important because it is compulsion prior to the big C, right? Mm -hmm. Conscription yes. in Canada. So with the topic, you mentioned Canada a few times. Are you focusing mostly on Canada? Yeah, absolutely. So um, within my project, I'm actually focusing entirely on Montreal as mm -hmm. the, the center of my study. So I'm doing this especially because there's like the high concentration of both English and French Canadians within that city. And what's, what was interesting too is that at the, that point in Canadian history and for quite a few decades afterwards, 
Montreal was actually the largest city in Canada. So and I've, it was fully bilingual at that point still? Um, I'm not sure if it was entirely bilingual because especially in the 1910s, there was still a lot of linguistic tensions. Okay. But at that point, it was kind of like English and French Canadians were like their separate races. What was interesting about Montreal was that although the majority were French Canadians, there was still a massive English Canadian presence. But it was interesting to see Montreal because it was like the English majority, it was now an English minority within the mm. French majority province. But yet the English minority still had a large sway because they had the overall English Canadian majority behind them. Okay, so, interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's yeah. very interesting. <laughs> so I guess if you're looking at Montreal and you're looking at enlisting, the you know, the war is declared, all these people are very perturbed by this possibly. Mm-hmm. What was their reaction to enlistment? So interestingly, um, upon the worst declaration in August of 1914, both English and French Canadians were actually quite enthusiastic really? and eager to enlist. What's quite significant is that um, a lot of historians kind of subscribe to this myth that French Canada from the start of the war wasn't enthusiastic. It's like an assumption that was created and then it's just been passed down and mm-hmm. it's been fortified and... Um, Although there is some truth within that statement, it's an oversimplification, and it's, it's generalizing all of French Canada, and it, like, it's not fair. What I did was I actually looked through two French and two English-speaking journals of the time, so La Presse, Le Devoir, and the Montreal Star and the Montreal Gazette, and um, all four of them really showcased the enthusiasm and the eagerness There was many articles that were saying how people were rushing to the streets and mm-hmm. cheering. They were all singing La Marseillaise, Rule Britannia, O Canada. They were extremely enthusiastic. There was even French Canadians who were volunteering in local regiments. Mm-hmm. There was even at one point where the Consul General of the French Embassy, his name was Consul General Raymond. Mm-hmm. I believe that was just his name, how they referred to him in the paper. But is stating how he had received countless requests from French Canadians to enlist directly beneath the banner of the French army in France. So that was actually a quite surprising development that I had noticed in the papers. I hadn't seen too much of that in the sources that I had read, like the secondary mm-hmm. sources. There's one spot uh, by a historian named Pierre Veneuve where he had actually mentioned it, but I didn't feel as if it was quite elaborated on. Mm-hmm. I was quite surprised when I saw that and quite mm-hmm. excited because I was like, okay, well, this lends credibility to the fact that, you know, it's true. French Canadians were eager and they wanted to participate. But uh, the thing is, is, what is important to mention, though, is that Le Devoir, the one... Uh, one of the French-speaking newspapers uh, of the time, was actually under the direction of Henri Bourassa, Canadian nationalists at the time. Mm -hmm. And he, for years and years prior to the First World War, he was actually pushing for more uh, Canadian autonomy within the British Empire. He was extremely against British imperial wars. Initially, though, he was quite enthusiastic and supportive of the war, but things would wane Mm-hmm. especially after Reglement set in Ontario. So that piece of legislation had a massive impact on the way French Canadians would begin to see the war and their own participation in so it. So the perceptions changed. Absolutely. And during this time, <clears throat> was there a lot of pressure pushing the people to enlist or were they just uh, happy to enlist? Well, there were a lot of pressures. So initially in 1914, perhaps the largest was imperialism. So essentially both English and French Canadians actually enabled themselves to be pressured by concepts of imperialism. You know, um, 
in a lot of the newspapers that I had consulted, especially for English Canadians, this link to Britain was just about all they needed to go. But it wasn't only that, but a large portion of the Canadian population at that point were actually British-born Canadians. Okay, they were either from a family that were British-born or themselves were British-born. Absolutely. Born. So okay. in Montreal alone, there was about 40,000 British-born Canadians. And the first contingent of the uh, Canadian Expeditionary Force, which I, I believe was made up of about like 30 or 40,000 Canadians, most were actually British-born. So initially, this imperial enthusiasm mm -hmm. was struck by these British-born Canadians who felt this... This need to help their other country. Absolutely. Yes. Their mother their country, mother country. Right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, they rushed to enlist. But French Canadians, they were being pressured in the sense where Canadians were saying, like, you know, um, French Canadians were eager to enlist alongside their mother country and mm -hmm. their former mother country of France. France. Yeah. yeah. So it was actually quite interesting to see that because a lot of historians tended to also say that French Canadians didn't feel a sense of obligation or ties to France the way that English Canadians or British English speaking Canadians had towards Britain at the time. But especially in La Presse, there were so many advertisements selling tricolor flags and so many instances where French Canadians were parading the streets singing La Marseillaise mm -hmm. and shouting Vive la France, Vive l'Angleterre. So it was interesting to see this connection that they had and how they actually believed that France was essentially worth fighting for and that they actually had to go with Britain and their Canadian comrades and go help France and Britain fight this war against, you know, mm -hmm. German aggression. Well, Canada hadn't been a, a country, per se, for hundreds and hundreds of years mm -hmm. at that point. So I guess there was still a little bit of divide between the French and the English. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of tensions at the time as well, but those especially started to rise with Regulation 17 in mm -hmm. Ontario. But, you know, there had been other instances where, especially in Manitoba, with the schools question. And mm -hmm. so there was this, like, limitation of French, it appeared, throughout the entire nation, where uh, the in, their influence was, was being curbed. And this really upset French Canadians because, you know, their conception of confederation uh, 50, almost 50 years earlier was of this uh, linguistic duality. You know, although it was stated that the country would become bilingual in linguistic duality, Obviously, English Canadians had far more influence within politics, and they wanted to maintain Canada's country with one language, one religion, one king, one flag. So that was definitely a problem for absolutely, the French. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And were there any definitive moments during this time that we're actually mentioning right now? Um, anything that happened or any big events or anything like that that you wish to mention? Make sure we understand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So th throughout Montreal at this time, there was, uh, especially going into 1915, that's when uh, pressures really started to rise. As the first contingent had gone overseas, um, a lot of Canadians started to lag behind when it came to enlistment. So that's where a lot of like the rising social pressures started to come in. So mm -hmm. a lot of English Canadians started using this conception of like masculinity to essentially pressure men into going you know saying uh, that if you don't do your duty then you're shaming the women who bore you and mm. the women who love you you're um, not supporting your family exactly you're not supporting yeah. your nation and you're you're basically a shirker mm. coward mm. a slacker and this sense. was in the propaganda absolutely so it was being yeah. propagated by a lot of men and women especially women who mm. would go around and shame men make them feel ashamed of being idle 
and um, not enlisting. Exactly, absolutely. Okay. And so there was actually a lot of instances as well where there was a lot of resistance, particularly among French Canadians, who at this point were focusing far more on Regulation 17 in Ontario rather than what was going on in Europe, especially because Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa was really propagating this idea and saying, you know, why should you fight overseas in Europe when you can stay here and be of better use fighting for your compatriots, your yes, and your own language, mm-hmm, you know? Um, so there was this event that did culminate in this period. It was at Parc La Fontaine, where there was in actually... Quebec or in Montreal? Uh, yes, in Montreal, yeah. Okay. It was one of like, the big parks in Montreal. And uh, there was, a, you know, enlistment, role recruiting for a specific battalion. I can't quite recall. It might have been the 65th or the 85th. There was a man named uh, Major Emile Rangier who mm-hmm. was trying to tell people, you know, our French Canadians need to do more and, you know, people mm-hmm. need to continue enlisting. But people started throwing eggs and rocks oh. at the major and they started shouting no conscription. So. Okay. I should have mentioned this a little earlier, but there was two industrial tycoons in Montreal. Like when recruitment was beginning to, to flag a bit, they stated that single men working in industry would begin being fired to compulse them into enlisting. Like a conscription of sorts. Exactly. See, okay. so the thing is, especially Le Devoir picked up this story and made it seem as if this was the beginning of conscription. Mm-hmm. You know, if... If a man can't stay at home and is being forced out of his job, then what would stop the next step from being full-on conscription? So at this rally, people were upset over that initial threat Mm -hmm. of uh, firing young men, young single men with work to go enlist. And so they were extremely upset. They started throwing rocks and eggs. The rally had to be stopped. Police got involved and tried to handle the situation, but... That was really a defining moment Mm -hmm. that um, really struck Montreal. What's important to state as well is that throughout my paper, although I do speak about like this rising social pressure to resist enlistment by 1915 and 16, in both of those years, you know, later in the war prior to conscription, there was actually still a lot of French Canadians coming forward and enlisting willingly. And... um, it's just, it's important to, to state that. So although there was this rising resistance, there was still like the steady trickle of French and English Canadians who were coming forward willingly to enlist. Some of the newspapers were covering like certain families who were joining and even like uh, famous French Canadian military families like uh, Des Salaberries, who had great, great nephews and whatnot who were enlisting in certain French-Canadian battalions, and it was made public knowledge at the time. You know, look at these uh, famous French-Canadian families who are enlisting. Well, these men are doing their duty. You know, perhaps you should, although that undertone of perhaps you should was not always so in your face like it Mm -hmm. was with English Canadians who used direct appeals and tactics of shame. So they did have differences between how they approached the French and the English. Absolutely. Social pressures to enlist were... Uh, They they were very aggressive for English Canadians, whereas they were quite moderate for French Canadians. Even the leader of the opposition, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, who was a prominent French Canadian, he tried hard to get French Canadians to enlist, and especially when their minds were pretty much focused on Regulation 17, he would go to recruiting rallies and say, don't worry about Regulation 17, it'll be handled in the courts. You don't have to worry, it'll be handled because... In his mind, and a lot of other French Canadians' minds, it was obviously unconstitutional for a provincial government to say, you know, we're not going to teach French in schools anymore. Mm -hmm. 
it's just going to be English after a certain point. So yeah, like a lot of the pressure was, you know, just don't worry about it. You'll be able to enlist. And not only that, but you'll be able to serve alongside French Canadians. A lot of French Canadians didn't want to enlist because they were afraid of being placed into English-speaking battalions, which was especially the case early on in the war. Like at first, a lot of French Canadians didn't seem to care. As the war progressed and there was more of like this linguistic tension and especially uh, English Canadians viewing French Canadians as doing less, well, French Canadians wanted to make sure that their interests were being upheld and they wanted mm -hmm. to actually serve in French Canadian battalions. A lot of these battalions started emerging. The Minister of Militia and Defence, mm -hmm. Sam Hughes, started to cave to these pressures to create French-speaking battalions for French speakers. It reminds me a lot of the Cape Breton Battalion, which I... I don't know much about the World Wars, but I did look at Cape Breton a lot mm -hmm. because I really enjoy the Gallic uh, community there. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that it kind of explains it a little bit where they also probably created this battalion to be more Gallic-centric. Absolutely. Well, in some of the sources that I read, it really showcased the importance of community. There were like, you know, the Scottish Highlander uh, battalions, the Irish Canadian Rangers. So I, at one point, they really played up on... The different cultures that were involved in a specific battalion. Exactly. They even played up uh, certain identities like frontiersmen or okay. sportsmen. Um, anything to just get groups of men together to go overseas, to keep them together so that they'd feel that cohesion and that camaraderie. Was that a new thing for World War One then, possibly? I, I'm not entirely sure, but it does appear as if at that time it was tactic to be used, especially because um, enlistment was up and down. Put it out there for men and to state, you know, you could serve with who you want and you could stay and fight alongside your friends, you know. That's what really made it appealing. They could all stay together, and it was all about identities. And I mean, mm -hmm. that's why that recruitment method was put into place, was because identity was important for both English and French Canadians, and mm -hmm. they wanted that to be maintained. And if it wasn't, then they were more reluctant to enlist. So that's interesting. <laughs> And so you talked a little bit about the tension between the French and English. Was there any other resistance between the two groups? Was there a very specific resistance? Oh, absolutely. Resistance? There's, yeah. uh, there's quite a few specific examples that I was able to uncover, but um, especially more into 1916, um, this was really when English and French Canada, you know, these two identities were really beginning to butt their heads concerning mm -hmm. the war. So essentially, French Canadians were saying, if you return our French schools to us, then we'll fight. But in a lot of instances, English Canadians were saying, fight first, and then we'll see. A lot of English Canadians were becoming extremely critical of French Canadians because of their perceived lack of enlistment. English Canadians uh, were obviously the majority and were doing far more. They were enlisting in far larger proportions in relation to their own population size versus that of French Canadians. More pressure to resist enlistment than there was to continue enlisting, especially because of, um, like I keep mentioning, Le Devoir, and there was like other uh, French Canadian nationalists like um, Amel Lavergne and Omar Héroux who were really pushing French Canadians to realize how disgusting they were being treated by English Canadians, why they shouldn't rush to fight for Britain and English Canada. So uh, Le Devoir and La Presse were really 
by this point focusing on other English Canadian newspapers who continue to criticize the French Canadian war effort. So in some cases, La Presse really focused on Toronto's news journal, who continued to state certain things like how, in reality, Wilfred Laurier had this conspiracy where he was in cahoots with the Roman Catholic Church to prevent French Canadians to enlist. Interesting. Obviously, this is a conspiracy. <laughs> Wilfred Lerie was continuously yeah. saying, don't worry about Regulation 17, let's mm-hmm. just enlist, let's do our part, let's help Britain, which is our mother country. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these English newspapers were just hounding French Canada for not enlisting and for being so focused on the language issue in Ontario. A lot of uh, newspapers which um, discussed how uh, a lot of English battalions used certain tactics to get French Canadians to enlist. They were saying, you're so concerned over this language issue in Ontario, but if Germany invades, the only language you'll be speaking is German. German. So yes. there was kind of like that pressure to say, if you focus too much on language, all their languages will disappear. They're really pressuring French Canadians in that way. And then there were prominent English Canadians like W.L. Galbraith. So he was an English Canadian from Quebec of Irish descent, I believe, because he was in the Orange Lodge, which was like the Orange Organization of Canada at that time. And that there was a British-based... Ex- absolutely. Okay. And it was in 1916 when they were celebrating Orange Men's Day. I believe mm-hmm. that's the 12th of July? Okay, I don't know. <laughs> Pretty sure it's the 12th of July. Galbraith was essentially saying how, as an English-born Quebecois, He was ashamed of Quebec because they were not enlisting and that Quebec was actually the spoiled child of confederation. So essentially he was criticizing French Canadians. He had initially believed that if there was one province in all of Canada who would have rallied behind Britain, Mm -hmm. it would have been Quebec because Quebec had its rights protected beneath the British flag and that... It's essentially like, don't bite the hand that feeds you, you know, if you have all these rights that are being protected, you know, like, essentially Quebec is like the special case, you know, it's Catholic, French speaking, it has certain laws upheld within the British Empire, so why would you not fight to Mm -hmm. protect your, you know, this special status within Canada? Well, it's interesting that you talk about tensions between the French and the English, so obviously the French were, I don't want to say being attacked, but Mm -hmm. definitely being... Um, maybe under pressure, under pressure yeah. by the British Canadians or the English Canadians. Mm-hmm. Sorry, was there another side to that? Did the French do anything for the English Canadians? Did you see anything in that end? French Canadians, well, in like the two newspapers that I've looked through, a lot of them were stating how French Canadians did their part and that mm-hmm. they shouldn't be hassled anymore. Okay, you know, they said that they support the war and that many of them didn't list. So there was like this debacle, I suppose between Henri Bourassa Mm -hmm. and one of his cousins named uh, Talbot Papineau. Both French. Both French, descendants of the Papineau from the 1837 Lower Canada Rebellion, part of like the rebellions in Canada. Talbot Papineau was essentially telling his cousin French Canadians should enlist more and that the nationalists are keeping French Canada from doing its duty. But the thing is, like when Henri Bourassa responded, he essentially stated that You know, if English Canadians can criticize French Canadians for not enlisting to the proportion of the population, then British-born English Canadians should be able to do the exact same for Mm -hmm. English Canadians because 
you know, uh, British-born English Canadians had enlisted in far more numbers than the English like, Canadians, yeah. yeah, who that who they themselves had enlisted more than the French Canadians. So the tensions were all around. Absolutely, they were between the French Canadians that were Canadian-born, the English Canadians that were Canadian-born, the English Canadians that were British-born. British born, yeah, there was a massive amount of British immigration to Canada, right? And I mean, I had read uh, well one book which is really great by Carl Berger. Um, the sense of power essentially speaks of Canadian imperialism and this large British immigration to Canada makes me think of a passage he had stated where uh, Canada truly believed to be the heir to the British Empire as the largest nation within the British Empire and so all this British immigration essentially allowed Canada to be extremely aligned with the Empire and I guess during the First World War, there wasn't a lot of women enlisting. I know that's probably oh, not yeah, no, a no. huge part of your project, but no. did you hear about any cool stories? Absolutely. I always like to absolutely. understand that. Well, I found this one story, and I thought it was absolutely incredible. Um, so when the First World War was uh, declared, the Minister of Militia and Defense, Sam Hughes, had organized Canada's main military base to be built at uh, Valcartier. I keep wanting to say Val-d'Or, but <laughs> yeah. Valcartier. And there was actually an instance where there was a suspicious figure who was marching around in a uniform, and it actually turned out that it was a woman. It's interesting because the article was saying how this young woman had actually made a bet with one of her friends that she could get <laughs> into the base. She worked at a, uh, a laundry. Okay, uh, so she could steal a uniform. Exactly. So she stole a oh uniform and she snuck in. A type of hazing of yeah, some kind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, but um, women did have a massive part from the start. I yeah. mean, um, although it's not central to my research, I went through so many newspaper clippings and I I, I saw so much, right? And um, with, from the start, women were very much so present in pressuring or even supporting the war effort. Especially at this point, right, there was the temperance movement, which mm -hmm. was really the way that women could get involved in politics, push for the vote for women. But that's the thing is women really perceived their contributions within the war mm -hmm. as a way to demonstrate their patriotism, devotion to Canada, mm -hmm. and to fight for their rights to gain those to vote. There was the Daughters of the Empire who did a lot of knitting and they, they created like uh, care packages for soldiers. They packaged candies and cigarettes and socks mm -hmm. to be sent to the front for all these young men. And there's a lot of examples I actually incorporated into my paper where women were driving force because there was a lot of articles within the English Canadian papers that were saying like, you know, tell your men to come out, show them their real plate. So, uh, and, and some recruiters even said that you know, women have tremendous power over men and that they should make them realize that if they're not at the front, then they don't belong here. They're not fighting for the Canadian rights. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not fighting for Britain and Canada and for women. And there's instances where, like, recruiters, especially for, like, the Irish Canadian Rangers, were saying, um, you know, I've seen the carnage in Belgium, what they do to girls and women. And if your men don't go overseas and fight, then that carnage and destruction will come here. It was really to encourage to keep the freedom that Canada enjoyed exactly. at the time and make sure that the war didn't make its way across the ocean. Well, that's the mm -hmm. thing, too. There was like this, uh, a lot of recruiters used this fear of invasion to, yes. to kind of stoke men into enlisting. Recruiters for the Irish uh, Rangers were essentially also stating, you know, the only reason Canada is safe right now is, is thanks to the, the Royal Navy. That Royal Navy could easily fail 
if more men don't rush mm -hmm. overseas. So they were saying, if you don't go overseas right now, you're not helping, you're being a shirker, and you're ultimately allowing the Germans to win. So you've been talking a lot about um, how you're looking at specifically the Canadian newspapers. Mm -hmm. Did you just for fun look at some of the European newspapers that were talking about Canada or about <gasps> different things? I mean, or is that really off your, your track? Yeah, it, it, re <laughs> it really is off my track, but I did see... So the thing is, is a lot of these newspapers did report on European development. So I did kind of see a lot of that. Did anything um, surprise you? Yeah, yeah, actually, what was surprising, and like, I knew that Britain at one point had conscription, but uh, especially throughout like the Gazette and the Star, I saw the unfolding debate concerning conscription. So it, it was just kind of funny because it was almost like this foreshadowing, right? Okay. Where um, these English Canadian newspapers were going, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the British Parliament is debating on conscription and, you know, this might be the last straw for it and, you know, it might be implemented tomorrow. Yeah. But there was always that pushback and always that um, that negotiation in terms with, mm -hmm. uh, politically, with conscription in Britain. And it seemed a lot of, like, foreshadowing for Canada's case because, of course, they were uh, talking a lot about conscription in Britain and then they're like, okay, well, if conscription is happening in Britain, that obviously means that as Canadians within the British Empire, we're not doing enough. Yeah. So they were really using the issue of conscription Understood. in Britain to essentially to pressure, yeah, to yeah. push, you know, if conscription is happening in the mother country, then perhaps it should happen here. That's so. a little scary. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of insecurity concerning conscription, obviously, right? So, <laughs> And I guess a lot of the historical books tend to start at that point, as you mentioned. Absolutely, yeah. So is that where you stop? Stop in October of uh, 1916, mm -hmm. um, because by 1917, especially near like the summer and whatnot, like that's where the issue of conscription really starts. So essentially I stop where people are becoming more and more paranoid of conscription. But I wanted to stop at that area because a lot of the uh, the content past that really has to do with like the debate on conscription using kind of the threat of conscription mm -hmm. as for like social compulsion right a lot of historians like like i've said before they tend to talk about enlistment as a failure and that's it they don't talk about okay well you know enlistment was done this way and that worked or didn't but even if they do it's always towards conscription right? kind of like giving the background up until like the big monster but in this case like i was really interested in just how society is able to construct its own civic obligation mm -hmm. and how it can actually push other social groups within the nation to to do something perhaps the way that they don't want to so after some technical difficulty we're back <laughs> <laughs> and we're finishing off with pat so I had wanted to ask you, you looked at specific newspapers in Montreal mm -hmm. or around the area. Had you actually looked around Canada to see if there was more talk about it or if there was more information on it? So I didn't exactly look too much at like other newspapers from other towns or anything. But throughout the newspapers that I did look at for Montreal, there was actually a lot of news concerning other towns like mostly Ottawa and Toronto and even like some stuff in Nova Scotia mm -hmm. so it's quite interesting to see how uh, enlistment was going on in like those other cities and how you know news surrounding uh, enlistment some forms of resistance and even uh, fears of conscription um, that was quite interesting to see from like the perspective of other towns but most of the newspapers that I did consult it was all about Montreal and uh 
the reactions, mm -hmm. how people perceived enlistment or military service and that resistance against it. So it was a topic throughout Canada, even though you concentrated mostly on Montreal, yeah. but there, there was concerns throughout other areas. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So like in a lot of the secondary sources that I had read, it discussed a lot about resistance in other cities like uh, Trois-Rivières and Guelph, mm -hmm. Lethbridge, um, even Toronto. But it wasn't so much, I guess, the French versus the English at this yeah, point. Yeah, no, not not everywhere. Like in towns where there was mostly French Canadians and then there's some English Canadians as well. That's where I, I feel like there was a lot of the tension between both linguistic groups in their conception of the war. But from the other cases that I did read from the secondary sources with like Lethbridge or Guelph, a lot of it had to do with ethnicity, really. I mean, looking at how English Canadians perceive the role of ethnic Germans or Austrians or even Greek. There were riots in Toronto against a Greek district, despite the fact that Greece was actually on the, the Allied side. side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess it was um, a lot of it had to do with like returned soldiers who came back, you know, wounded and who didn't have the same capabilities as before and who felt that they weren't being integrated into society well enough and then saw immigrants with jobs owning businesses. Mm -hmm. And obviously that creates anger, especially once a, a man comes back and believes that he's given so much for his country and that he deserves a place in society and perceives himself as not being given that mm -hmm. place so and the psychological aspects just in general when they come back would have been very heavy and very oh, yeah. hard to, uh, Absolutely. to manage yeah. yeah well i mean a lot of them had a very difficult time yeah. coming back so you looked at those newspapers and then you you've mentioned some secondary sources mm -hmm. and your picture is fairly full when it comes to this topic yeah, you have a good idea of where everybody <laughs> stood as much as possible without going back taking a time machine yeah although that would yourself. be absolutely <laughs> incredible yeah, yeah if you could have a time machine in. with the bubble there and just see everything that'd be incredible yeah so you would go back and definitely observe all oh, that and make absolutely. notes oh yeah <laughs> write a book yeah that'd be incredible that'd be an experience obviously well yeah but do you feel like you've captured that mentality by researching all of these different aspects? I think so, honestly, yes. I feel like uh, having looked through these newspapers and seeing the way that people discussed enlistment and service and how there was this obligation despite the fact that there was no form of state-implemented conscription, there was like that moral conscription. And I think it's just incredible for the time to see how within society there's like sects that have their own perceptions of the war and how they try to force everyone else to follow along if they're not and then how certain other sects somewhat uh, they, they resist and they try to maintain their own ideas of uh, service and obligation civic duty and um, that gives a really uh, cool point that you're taking up i mean if you were to let's say shift the whole project and shift to another town or even another province mm -hmm. and then go even further maybe shift to another country you feel like there would be different elements to the perception of war Absolutely. through different eyes, different cultures, different... You know, yeah. even if you're sticking to the Allies' side, you would still get a lot of different... Yeah, I mean, what I think is extremely interesting about my project, though, is that um, it really showcases how, like, warfare is not just, like, a national... Uh, a national crusade it's very individual right like you look at individual cities like Montreal or you know all the other ones that I had read about from my secondary sources and it just really shows you how um, conflict and the perception of conflict the participation or the lack of is a very local event wow, it's incredible it just it really showcases how societies you know it's not just one society it's like societies 
everybody has their own conception. And we don't learn that necessarily through, I mean, we don't have time in, let's say, high school history classes, Mm -hmm. but we don't really learn about individual aspects so much. We kind of talk more in generalities. Uh, And I mean, that's that's great. At least we're aware of it. (laughs) But at the same time, this kind of project is really important because it makes us understand a little bit deeper Mm -hmm. what's driving people, what's pushing them one way or the other, or making them pull back or making different choices. Yeah, absolutely. So you're digging into a very specific vein and it's it's very helpful for other yeah. people. Well, I think it is very helpful because um, at least it will showcase this focus on like prior to conscription, right? To showcase how society does have a voice and how they, they do have a form of coercion and that society has the power to pressure and force people into doing something that they may not want to do. And I just think that that's an extremely incredible process, especially at that time where, you know, imperialism was happy and alive, gender dynamics were entrenched and, and that was just how it was. You know, if you were a man, you were expected to do this in times of war, to serve and to fight overseas. And it's quite interesting to see how a lot of people in the city, both among francophones and anglophones, followed along with these type of pressures or even resisted them. It really, it rewrites, it allows us to really look deeper into, like you're saying, like this vein of history and to see how everything isn't that national level and isn't always how uh, how it's being told you know like um, not everybody was willing to serve and uh, yet not everyone resisted right yeah like it, was, it wasn't uh, a it wasn't a hundred percent either exactly. way it was uh, it was very meshed and as right? a historian <laughs> you must love looking back and knowing what's coming you're still hopeful because you're mm-hmm. you're still saying well people were still wanting to join it that's really helpful and mm-hmm. In Montreal, I guess, um, mostly French and English is what you were studying. Mm-hmm. Did you find other cultures besides, you know, let's say the Greek quarter you're talking about in Toronto, but oh, did absolutely. you find other other parts of town? And, oh, yeah. Like, yes. So in Montreal, there's like these three other large ethnicities mm-hmm. or origins. So there was like a very large Jewish population, Russian and Italian. Okay. It's quite interesting because like the newspapers discuss them at, at length. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I saw how uh, initially during the declaration of war, the Italians were, they celebrated the, uh, the Triple Entente against mm-hmm. Germany and Austria, despite the fact that Italy had signed an agreement with those two <laughs> countries for mutual defense, but obviously Italy didn't join. But when they did in 1915... Um, the newspaper revealed how Italians throughout Montreal were parading the streets in support <laughs> and that thousands rushed to go overseas to fight for their for their mother country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, uh, interestingly, though, for the Russians, there's a lot of Russians that were against the war. And I mean, that truly showcases even like the sentiment back home. Mm-hmm. The Russian Empire is struggling with the war and you know there's a revolutionary even in the russians living abroad right Mm -hmm. but then there was also the jews of montreal who um were quite in support of the war yeah so it's interesting though to see and they actually uh the jews of montreal actually wanted to raise a battalion of their own as well Interesting. and um yeah so it's quite uh revealing to see so it seems like everybody did want to play some role, you know, changed a well, little bit. Well, see, that's bit, but, the thing too, right? Because yeah. I mean, even initially, how I was saying before, how like French Canadians were quite supportive. Well, even initially, other French Canadians uh, that were more hesitant, 
like uh, Armel Levanov, uh, who was in, I guess, cahoots with uh, Henri Bourassa mm -hmm. and Le Devoir. He was in support of the war, but he said, we should just defend our own borders. That's how we'll contribute to Britain, mm -hmm. uh, be the, the food basket of Britain, as well as defending our own borders so they don't have to worry about us and focus on the war. But we shouldn't have to send men overseas, right? Like, um, it's a different philosophy at that point. Well, exactly. Until, obviously, yeah. things de you know, more developments come about and it makes French Canada a little more hesitant, and then within Montreal especially, a bit more of that resistance. But uh, obviously, though, it's not as clear-cut as you know a lot of historians have presented it. French Canada equals resisted yeah. during the war. You know, this whole project's been quite difficult, and there's been a lot of ups and downs, and, but I love it throughout. But it just it really reveals how history is complex and how... I don't know, it's just like, if I went back like a year from now, I wouldn't know half the things that I've discovered, right? So it's... Some aspects of the war, it seems as if it can almost make you think back to, you know, the kind of wars that I've studied more in the medieval times, mm -hmm. where they had to have these social things too, we just don't know about them. Yeah. So you kind of transpose some of these ideas just throughout history. You know, it gives you a really good idea about humanity, just oh, yeah. in general. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, it's, it's just, it's interesting to see how people interact with, like, these social phenomena, especially conflicts and, mm -hmm. like, world conflicts like that. Um, and we don't think of the, the individuals, like no. you mentioned. Yeah, so. it's just masses of, you know... Just 100,000 people went to war. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a very general statement. Yeah, exactly. But mm -hmm. even just to see the social aspect of it and, like, the people behind the army. I mean, that's one thing. Like, I love military history, but I think it's really nice to see the society that's waging war, not just the militaries that are Not just the war. puppeteers that yeah. are controlling the, the military. Exactly. You know, like, that saying, it's like a, an army marches on its stomach, but I really feel like wars are sustained by the people mm -hmm. and the society so if you don't have the people's support then you can't wage the war it's kind of like mm -hmm. that thing with too with like the hearts and minds with the war in vietnam but it's you know it's you got to have people's support to wage a war so it's, it's interesting to see how uh, a portion of society had both supported and resisted the war and how it led to like social compulsion prior to conscription it was a beautiful project <laughs> <laughs> So if somebody wants to feel like they're Pat today and they're the historian who can, you know, read more about it, if you had to tell a fellow historian or a fellow student or even somebody who's passionate about history. Actually, so there's two books that I'm thinking about. Now, one is actually an online book. It's by Terry Kopp. It's called Montreal at War, 1914 to 1918. Mm -hmm. That one really focuses on just looking at, like, Montreal a little prior to the war as well as throughout the war. Although Kopp uh, doesn't look too much at like resistance he does brush up on some of it he really goes like very much into detail about the raising of battalions mm -hmm. and how society in montreal was evolving along the war so that's it's quite it's absolutely interesting um the second book although it's not about montreal it actually served as a basis for this study because well it's by uh, ian miller and it's called our glory and our grief uh, Torontonians in the Great War and um, it really showcases how 
a city evolves along the war and how they participate, how they can resist. He really goes into detail about just how women participated in recruiting. That's a neat angle. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. he even looks at how um, some like socialists throughout the city and unionists, uh, the workers, how they resisted calls for conscription. So although he, like, he does go from Toronto and into conscription and whatnot, but I think it's quite revealing of a city and a city's experience through war. Mm-hmm. So both those books, I feel, would really showcase like the individualities of cities and the ethnic groups and just social classes within them and how they interact, react, participate, and resist during times of war. Both amazing books. I would definitely recommend them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, once it's all finished and possibly somewhere online mm-hmm. or somewhere accessible, hopefully we can add that to the show notes mm-hmm. so our listeners can read what you've done and Absolutely. there'll be tons of book suggestions in the bibliography yeah. for those oh, bibliophiles oh yeah so. <laughs> we'll have a good time going through that <laughs> yeah so i really appreciate you coming back and making mm-hmm. sure that our sound uh, sound defects didn't affect too much of yeah, your absolutely. podcast time well, and i had a i had a good time both times so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks pat i Thank really appreciate much. it <laughs> uh, i had a good time it was nice being on here Thank yeah you. thanks <laughs> And with that podcast with Patrick, I have two book recommendations that he suggested. I have Terry Kopp, Montréal at War, 1914 to 1918. And he also gave me the article by Jean Martin, which is called, Yes, French Canadians Did Their Share in the First World War. So you're going to find all that in the show notes. Don't forget to find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at History A. You can email me. You can go to the website, historya.com. You can also rate me on iTunes. It really helps. I appreciate all your efforts in this matter. And of course, I can't forget to thank my husband, Jamie, and our bunch of kids, our family, our friends, who've put up with me adventuring through history. Without you, this wouldn't have been possible. Un grand merci. First World War. Sorry. Been mowing the lawn now. And that we will definitely hear. <laughs> oh, we might have to take a break, Pat. So, yeah, no. how was your weekend? That <laughs> oh, was pretty good, though. Yeah. We're Monday today, are we not? Monday we show? are Monday. Okay. Did yeah. they cut grass on Mondays? I, I, th- I think it's like the beginning of every week. Yeah. Looks we're like good. It. Looks like it. I mean, I don't know when they'll bring up the whippersnipper to make sure. But, Hopefully later. Yeah.